Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. While you and me are trying to defund the police, I'm also trying to like defund MGM <laughs> so I can get some black people. Hashtag defund MGM. <laughs> to direct these movies. So I, it's like it's it's a yeah. it's like a universal institutional issue, I think. Yeah, yeah. Hola, welcome to episode 5 of Absolutely Not, the podcast dedicated to debunking all things absolutely incorrect. I'm your host, Leanna Lupin, and on today's episode, you'll hear from my partner, Deontay, about the joys and barriers in the filmmaking world. And he'll eventually also go off about why he thinks Hamilton does not deserve the hype. Alright, let's do it. Okay, yeah, you can't slurp and and slam it down like that. I won't. Okay, <laughs> welcome to episode five. I happen to be here with the greatest filmmaker of all time, who also happens to be the love of my life, but those are two totally unrelated ideas. Um, but hi, Dee. Hi, this is Deontay here. Welcome to my podcast. It's not your podcast. This is my episode of Absolutely Not. Yeah, starring me. Um, can you just introduce yourself and say some relevant identities that you think people should know that don't know you moving forward? Yes, I am black. I'm a he and him, and I'm a filmmaker, and I'm fresh as hell. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, so since you are a filmmaker... This is weird for you? Yeah, this is really weird. I'm trying to be professional, okay? Since you are a filmmaker, my first question for you is why. Why movies? What draws you to movies? Why are they your chosen career in medium as opposed to something else? Hmm, that's a good question, <laughs> and I do wish I would have read these in advance now. <laughs> But to answer the question, um, why movies? I feel like um, movies are are such a critical part of my childhood. Um, Growing up as the only child um, with a single mother, not having access to a lot of the things, um, to a lot of like healthy and safe options, I feel like movies were our way of kind of coming together and like bonding and seeing the rest of the world. And I don't even think I really understood how much I liked movies until... Um, I, I went away from home and and realized that, like, oh, man, I don't connect to any of the shit I'm seeing in college or any of these people that I'm meeting. Their lives are so different than mine. And so much of how I viewed the world was through movies. And I think that's when everything shifted and I realized I wanted to, like, actually make movies. Do you have, like, one unifying ultimate goal in your storytelling? Like, are you making films for a particular audience or for a particular purpose, or does it depend? This is like a really good commercial for my from from my work. <laughs> I, I mean, not really. I mean, I just I just want to make movies. That's it. I just want to make some dough, and I want to make movies, and I want to do it at the same time. And preferably, I like to make movies that normalize people of color, um, black people, minorities, gay folk, trans folk, everybody. Um, so that's kind of the ultimate goal. But you know, one step at a time, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so then my next question is then like which stories or identities or perspectives from your own life do you tend to draw on the most when filmmaking? Like you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but like what do you, yeah, what do you pull from? What do you think are the most like poignant things from your life that you like to use in your, because you direct, but you also write. Yeah. So what are the kinds of things that you, that you pull from when you are filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a nigga. Like that's, that informs everything. You know what I mean? Like, that's how it's, my whole family's black. That's how I see the world. So that's, like, the most... That's that's where everything kind of comes back to. Um, I also, you know, grew up without a father. Um, grew up with a single mother. Grew up with a lot of money. So these are... I mean, these are not, like, 
unbelievably unique things. These are universal things that a lot of people, especially black folk, go through in this country. So those are the kind of things that I rely on. But at the same time, I'm not necessarily trying to tell stories about those things. I'm just trying to uh, trying to create stories that, that illuminate uh, how those things affect day-to-day lives for, yeah. for people of color. Yeah, right. Okay, so then there's this, this line, I think, in filmmaking um, between telling a story that you feel connected to personally and co-opting someone else's experience. And I feel like you're really uniquely positioned based on your lived experiences. But I am curious, like, how do you balance wanting to represent, you know, a diverse array of voices and perspectives that are different from your own while still, like, doing them justice and making them authentic? I feel like that's a, a task that filmmakers have that are interested in in bringing people forward that aren't are different from them. You know, like, you've made films with women protagonists. Like, how do you do that authentically? How do you straddle that? That yeah, line. yeah. I mean, it's it's like a really hard thing to balance. I mean, what you come, what you always come back to is like, when you say like, oh, you've made movies with women protagonists. It's like, yeah, I, but like, w- women are just humans, so it's right. like, you're dealing with like things that are are, are like universal for all humans, right? Um, love, loss, all these things, identity. Um, but at the same time, like, and this is something that I deal with a lot is like, how do you? I don't want to be necessarily in charge of of showing or telling someone else's story or trying to display someone else's struggle if I don't know anything about it but at the same time I'm a creative I'm an artist and I do want the freedom to tell whatever story I want Mm -hmm. so it's a hard it's a hard it's a hard mix but I I feel like generally like we just watched Disclosure Mm -hmm. we didn't watch together but we both recently (laughs) watched it on the Laverne Cox documentary on Netflix and I feel like there are even some of the most like beautiful promising universally acclaimed trans stories um, haven't aged well because they were directed either by white men or, or white women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I feel like for me, like there are certain things that I, I'm not sure I can touch or you know, unless I've done the work or unless I've brought in people that come from that, from that sphere, because I feel like it's not going to age well no matter what I do, if it's just my perspective. Yeah. Cause I don't know shit. I have a very limited perspective <laughs> of the world. Yeah. Um, well, I know that. Yeah. You don't know shit. Everybody, everybody knows that I don't know shit. And so for me, it's like I don't, I don't want to like, I don't want to like, you know, present myself as someone who understands all of these intricate, complex struggles when I really don't. Mm-hmm. I barely understand my own struggle. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So then, okay, that's that's when you have power as a writer. How does that work when you're solely in the directing role, which is eventually the role that you're trying to only have, right? Yeah. So then, someone presents you with a story. What happens, and you know, have you had any experiences where you're asked to direct something that doesn't ring true to you, or that you recognize as a potential story that won't age well because it it hasn't done the work of like understanding the the perspective it's trying to portray? Yeah, so see where you're taking it. <laughs> this shit happens all the time, um, where I come ac- come onto a project and I'm excited about it, and I'm not writing it. Um, and the, the topic that comes up that we're writing about proves to be one that is a little too complex and deep and important just for me or for the writer to tackle. And it's hard because it's like as a director and as a writer, whichever part, whichever position I'm taking, like you want to do the work. And at some point you feel like you have done the work. Mm-hmm. And the hardest part is when someone from that community tells you like, but you didn't do the work. Uh-huh. That's a hard pill to swallow. But yeah. as a creative I'm gonna say it's your responsibility, but if you're if you are a responsible creative, like you you will swallow that pill and figure out how to move forward. Mm-hmm. And so, oftentimes, I'll get to a point on a script where I'm like, you know what, this is some shit that I can't do, mm-hmm. and 
I got two options. I just move on from it completely or I find a way to completely rework it so that it so that I can tell that same story but not, you know, fucking insult or harm an entire population that yeah. I don't belong to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you said you use the word responsibility, which I think is really interesting. Like, do filmmakers or people that are basically telling stories for the public, do they have a responsibility to do research? Like, you know, what is your opinion on that? Because... If you're writing a story about your own life, that's easier in a lot of ways because you're the expert and no one can tell you whether or not that's correct. But if you choose to do literally anything else, even if it is, like, surrounding identities that are similar to your own, but especially when it's not, like, do you have a legitimate responsibility to look into that and and do it from the most informed you can possibly be? Absolutely not. (laughs) And, but but absolutely at yeah. the same time and what I mean by that is like and you know me better than anybody on this planet so you know I think you know what I'm about to say but I don't think anybody has a responsibility to do anything yeah I knew you were going to do this I'm like <laughs> I don't think like I say think, something new cut I don't think people I don't I think we like we put too much emphasis on like making people behave the way we want them to I think yeah. I think people have the freedom to do whatever the fuck they want and that's just on them um, and so, no, I don't, I think filmmakers can, like, make whatever they want. I mean, most biopics or historical fiction pieces are actually completely inaccurate. And a lot of people get mad about that. I don't. I'm like, it's a movie. This is mm. a story. We're not, I don't think anyone has ever watched a movie and felt like this is a real mm. thing. Mm. But on the flip side of that, absolutely. You have, like, yeah. if you want, if, like, and that's what I'm saying. I don't think you have a responsibility, but I think if you are a responsible director, which is yeah. a different thing. Mm. Uh, or a responsible filmmaker, like you will, you you will know that what you are doing should not be taken lightly, and you will know that like what you are doing can potentially have like a really large effect on on like the world. Mm-hmm. And we're not like we're not saving lives here. Movies are like the most unimportant thing you can think of, but they're also incredibly important. <laughs> and so it's like this weird dichotomy where you yeah. have to not take it too seriously, but also and not get mad over dumb things, but also realize this is like actually really important in many ways, depending on what kind of film you're making and why you're making it. Yeah, so basically, like, if you're good at it, you'll do a good job, but if you're bad at it, you'll do a bad job. I mean, no, I... I didn't say that, but yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's what's between the lines, and I think I agree with you. Although, you know, I'm always team, like, it is your responsibility! Yeah, and then I just, I plug my ears and walk away from you. Um... But especially, I mean, I don't know, that's an interesting point about, like, biopics. Biopics? Biopics? Biopics, right? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to put it out there. I don't want to be judged. I think it's biopic makes sense because you're saying okay anyways if like the family members of the person whose life you're showing are still alive i feel like it just makes sense to ask them what they think yeah um, but asking them and, and actually enacting that are two yeah things you still want to make a good movie yeah and like let's be real like at, at the end of the day especially if you're making it like a biopic like those movies are usually going to be like you know pretty big released movies you're not usually you're not making like an indie biopic on ray charles right so it's like (laughs) so it's like if these these movies just like any other film just like blockbuster just like most genres they they follow a format there's a tried a tried and true format yeah and oftentimes life is way too messy to fit into that format so it's like yeah and just like even malcolm x i think about that movie all the time because you know i love malcolm x i love that book i love the movie it's it's a masterpiece the movie's three and a half hours long and it's still condensed yeah. characters yeah, and, and left things out. Yeah, it's entire life into Yeah, and my thing is, like, life is too messy and there's too many things to, like, actually be able to present it in a narrative way that is interesting and fun to watch. So it's just going to get lost, yeah. you know what I mean? And sometimes yeah. shit that gets lost should definitely not get lost. Yeah. But sometimes stuff that gets lost, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm sorry it hurt you or didn't work for you, but it needed to happen. Okay, what about then, like, adding 
the elements that you know a Hollywood audience craves that are just made up. So, like, the white saviors that are at it. Like, I just read a thing about in Hidden Figures, wherever... It's not Dennis Quaid, but it's the guy that looks like Dennis Quaid. Where, he, like, his whole character, I think, didn't even exist. Or it was something along the lines of, like, he, like, gives her the Hold keys. On, so this she is, can, for those of you that don't know, Leanna has a hard time distinguishing white men from, from each other. Just in general. I'm just not good at it. Okay, anyway. Dennis Quaid's brother... It's not Dennis Quaid. <laughs> Whatever. What am I trying for? I'm just thrown off by not being done. <laughs> okay, Kevin Costner. I know Kevin Costner. There we go. Kevin Costner's character, I think, is wholly made up, or if not, he like gives her the keys so she can come watch the launch, and in reality, that didn't that never happen. She watched it from from like the where. <laughs> yes. You know what I'm saying. Yes. Yes. So what do you say to those kinds of things? Because that is changing things in service of making it a movie that you know will do better because it has those elements. Yeah, well, like I was saying, let's break it down, right? Like, there are things that you take away or add, and some of them are good and some of them are really bad, and let's break it down. Like, that was a movie about about the first black women computers and the ways in which they were paramount to our first kind of launches, right? But who, it's not directed by a black woman. It's not directed by a black person. Right. It's a white man. Right. And, and then on top of that, I don't know if it was his idea or someone else's idea, but obviously, like, there are these things that Hollywood is always going to have to add in order to make it more bankable, to make more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, like, the nature of the game. And I think that's what we're trying to, to change mm-hmm. as, as, every, as, you know, this whole movement is kind of getting more traction than ever. This is, all, this is an all-encompassing thing, you know? Yeah. Like, while, while you and me are trying to defund the police, I'm also trying to, like, defund MGM <laughs> so I can get some black people... Hashtag defund MGM. <laughs> ...to direct these movies. So I, it's, like, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's like a universal institutional issue, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, back to you then, specifically. What has been the most important thing you think you've learned in trying to write and or direct stories of, like, the quote-unquote other? Like, what has been, you know, walk us through your trial and error or something that... You feel like you could you could help somebody maybe skip a couple steps if you just tell them like, hey, I had this realization or this one thing that I do actually really helps me to approach this sensitively and thoughtfully. Yeah, I. You don't have an answer. I don't have an answer because <laughs> I mean I'm not gonna presume to tell anyone how to make it. When I can't even figure out how to make it. But what I do think, what I can say is that especially if you're a black indigenous person of color, you know, or LGBTQ, anything, any minority, any other person, you were trying to create a story you know, make it authentic and, and be true to who you are. Because what I've noticed is that Hollywood, and when I say Hollywood, I mostly just mean white people. They, <laughs> they want you, you know, especially now they want black stories. What do you, what do you got? Yeah, what are you right. about? What are you about? And then when you give them a black story, they're like, huh, okay, but, you know, shouldn't what it be this? from the perspective or, of the white driver? Yeah, or not even that, but they're like, you know, is, is the older brother a gangbanger? They're like, no, the nigga's a teacher. They're like, oh, <laughs> well, could he be a gangbanger? <laughs> Like I had this, I have this short that um, that you love um, about this about this young girl, and she has two parents, two yeah, young, one. yes, two young parents of color, um, and they're in love with each other. And one thing that I was trying to stress when I was making is that these two parents don't not only are they loving towards their daughter and supportive towards their daughter, but they love each other, and that's just as important. Um, and when I showed that film to a bunch of people, creators, directors, producers that are pretty successful and popular. They all told me the same thing. Well, I don't understand. Like, why? Maybe they should be abusive to, towards her so she can that. get so she can get away from them. And it made me think to myself, like, damn, should I have done that? No. How can I change it? How can I? And I was, and then I had this realization where I was like, the whole fucking point of that was to show that these parents love each other. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that, like, the, their love for each other and for their daughter in America is not enough to get their daughter out of this fucked up situation. Mm-hmm. And then, but, so what do I do with that? Like, I can't give it to Hollywood because they want the parents to be, yeah. to be scumbags. And, um, I mean, I can't give it to people of color because there are no po- powerful people of color. Yeah. And when I do, they're like, yeah, I know, I get it. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> So it's this weird thing where it's like there's it's, there's so much opportunity for, for us at this moment in time and yet so little. Yeah. I mean, I think you just touched on something super interesting, which is like who are the gatekeepers in filmmaking? I mean, we know it's white people in Hollywood, but I am really curious as someone who knows nothing about how this works or, you know, what the pipeline is. But like what you just said is that it kind of sounds like these people didn't want or couldn't compute your film because it didn't adhere to, like, the American dream and, like, bootstrap theory. If you don't know, here I'm referring to the way many people believe in bootstrap theory, the idea that the best way to improve your life is to create your own opportunities, a.k.a. lift yourself up by your own bootstraps despite any and all hardship. However, time and again, data have shown that your starting position, in the U.S. at least, the circumstances to which you were born, tends to be the biggest predictor of your ending point because, by and large, people end up in the same place they started. In the context of this conversation, we heard how people couldn't compute Deontay's film Nothing and No One because his main character had everything you'd need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, including a stable home and strong will, and yet it still didn't work. I'm actually really curious how that applies to actually filmmaking. I feel like from watching you within this industry, it seems like it plays out where these high-up white execs say shit like, oh, your rite of passage includes, like, being an assistant, right, and not making a minimum wage and not having health care and being treated like absolute dirt, but, like, you have to do that and then eventually your day will come. Like, how much of that is, you know, absolute bullshit? How much of that is them adhering to the, just the same white American dream that people are in all other industries. Because I, like, I feel like that's what they've told you. Mm. But they're also white people who were born into privilege, had connections, yada, yada, yada. Like, what does that pipeline actually, I don't know, what does that pipeline actually look like? Who are the gatekeepers? How does it work? <laughs> I mean, if I, if I knew who the gatekeepers were, I, yeah. I would try to get into that gate. So trust me, I don't fucking know. But what I do know is that that, that used to be how it worked. Um, I feel like from what I've heard and learned, Hollywood used to like really work as this like medieval armor shop where you would like be <laughs> a blacksmith's apprentice, and then when you figure out how to master like the legendary broadsword, you would become your own legendary you know up, like blacksmith. But that um, was when it was all white people. Well, yeah, that was when it was mostly white men. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I also think like that's gone away for a lot of reasons. It's gone away because of like streaming services and yeah. how how relatively easy it is now yeah, to, to self publish. Yeah, and that is there are some ways in which if you do it right, you can easily get in. But I would say by and large that that that's a fucking myth. It's like it's such bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. So then, what advice do you have for young filmmakers? I mean, I would say just, like, write and shoot. I mean, you can't be a filmmaker unless you make films. Like, that's all it comes down to. And, like, this hasn't happened for me necessarily, but I feel like what how it happens for most people is that somebody with connections or power or money says to goes up to a, a filmmaker and says, what do you have? What can you show me? And if you have nothing to show them, then the conversation's over. Yeah. Um, and I think for now, like, this Hollywood has um, has worked so hard to stop to prevent cameras from getting in the hands of black folk and and black men specifically, right? And if you think about how hard it is for, it to, for a black man to get a camera, 
how damn near impossible it has been for women, for black women, for women of color, for trans folks, for gay folks to get cameras. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So now it's like, you know, we have access to iPhones and cheap DSLRs and, and, you know, all these different things that we can use. It's like, you just got to shoot. You just got to be a filmmaker. Yeah. You know, if you want to write, you got to put in the chair time. If you want to direct, you got to direct stuff. And I'm also talking to myself because I don't do nearly as much as I want to do. That's good. Okay. Yeah. But it's, you know, you just got to do it. What I will, what I will say though, kind of going back, I want to, I want to name drop. I recently was in this talk with Bradford Young, mm -hmm. who is probably like the most famous black cinematographer working right now. Mm -hmm. um, he's unbelievably talented. And in this talk, this is completely his idea. I didn't, I came up with zero of this, but he was talking about the way that Hollywood treats diversity in mm -hmm. this day and age, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, he was like, you got to think of these movie studios as plantations. And, you know, these, the people that, that run these production companies are slave owners, right? And, you, and what they're trying to do, he, he mentioned that, like, you know, when, when slavery was kind of on the, kind of on the up and out, mm -hmm. and people kind of were getting a little cagey about if they should enslave whole popula populations, what progressive slave masters would do is they would send out their, their house Negro, Mm -hmm. and their house Negro would be a delegate, mm -hmm. and they would send them out in these fancy clothes to mm -hmm. go handle business transactions, and these house Negroes would say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I can read, I can write, I'm here for my master, right? But at the end of the day, they're, they're doing these, these transactions for the master, and when they come back home, they're, they're, they're a slave, right? And he's like, so what diversity looks like in Hollywood now is that all these studios are trying to hire, you know, people of color, and they send these people of color out to their panels, right? Warner Brothers sponsors, uh, sponsors a panel about how to, you know, diversity behind the camera. But at the end of the day, who runs Warner Brothers? Right, right. And, right. and all we're doing is generating press, you know, PR co content for these giant studios that are right. mostly run and owned by white folk. So it's this, it's this crazy thing where it's like, you know, if you're a slave with better clothes and more opportunities, you're still a slave. Mm. Um, and it's like, how do you, how do we completely change that? How do you create brand new institutions that yeah. from the, from the jump are inclusive? Yeah. yeah. Are there any? Um, I mean, there are, and there are not. I mean, they're starting to form and you yeah. have a lot of, like you have macro, which is a huge one. Um, and they, they're doing so much good work. I mean, every, pretty much every black star right now from Issa yeah. Rae to Kevin Hart is doing some, so much good work. You obviously have Tyler Perry yeah. who will say what you want about his work, um, created the first major black studios yeah, right and, it, yeah. and it's unbelievably well run i mean horrible timing with coronavirus but it's yeah. a huge studio for <laughs> yeah. for black content so yeah. it's happening kenya barris it's my guy so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's happening for sure it's happening for sure um okay so based on this and based on who we know the gatekeepers are how does like your specific identity work because you are a black man. You did grow up with a single mother, but you also are Stanford-educated. You definitely can't pass this white, I don't think, but you are not dark-skinned, right? Like, you're half-white. But, like, how do you code switch, or how do you leverage those kinds of things in these conversations? Or do you? Like, do you have an oh, interest in using them? <laughs> absolutely. You have to, yeah, I mean, code switching is such an integral part of, like, my my relative success and my ability to to even like make movies and it's a privilege without a doubt really quickly i know i just used the phrase code switch and i wanted to break down what that actually meant in case you didn't know or in case you hadn't heard that phrase before what code switching means is to modify one's behavior appearance dialect register accent or language to adapt to different socio-cultural norms and to project a specific identity 
Let me tell you, I'll be doing that every single day. Every conversation I'll be adapting, trying to, you know, adjust to societal norms. You know what I'm saying? All right, let's go back to the podcast. <laughs> like, you know, I was raised by a completely black family. Yeah. I didn't know any, the only white people in my family were, were the other biracial cousins. Um, and so I, the only experience I had growing up was a black one. But at the same time, you look at me and you look at my interests and you look at my friends, it's hard to deny that, like, cauc- like caucasity has had such a big part <laughs> in shaping me. Um, I have a lot of Caucasian roots. Um, and so for me, it's hard because when I'm in a room applying for a job or interviewing for a job or trying to pitch on something, right? Like I, it's this weird thing where it's like, I'm performing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm doing like a white voice, a voice that's easy for them to like, to, to listen to. Mm-hmm. But I also, but I also am giving them like flourishes of who I actually am. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've learned in my recent years, and we can talk about this for a while, is that like these performances um, the way that I've, like, performed different identities are not, like, isolated performances. They're, they're, they're a part of one giant performance, right. which is, like, the Deontay Singley show. Right. Right. And that, like, growing up, I felt kind of weird accessing different parts of my identity. You know, when I was with my black friends, I was always the whitest, right. the whitest one in the room, and they call me light skin, and they call mm-hmm. me, you know, um, Corbin Blue and all these different things. But then when I'm in, <laughs> when I'm in white settings, I'm usually the, the blackest person right. in the room. Right. Um... And so for me, it's always been this. Yeah, and so it's always been this weird thing where it's like I always felt like I was kind of splitting my personality into phases or I guess compartments. Mm -hmm. And I think it wasn't until I graduated from college did I realize how I could harness all of those things Mm -hmm. and how all these things didn't make me five separate people, but they coalesced into one person. It was Mm -hmm. almost like the Infinity Stones, (laughs) like Thanos' Infinity Stones, and I would wield all of them together to form the superpower Deontay. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, let's be clear, like, depending on who I'm talking to and what room I'm in, like, you'll hear a very different, you can hear a very different side of me, but I feel like... I've heard all of them. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) and they, they coexist happily. Yeah. Um, but my ability to code switch, I think, has almost become a superpower and has enabled me to move through spaces or to be, you know, an assistant for, for many, many years, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas I, I feel like if I wasn't able to switch up my my vocabulary, my vernacular, and the way I moved through space, yeah. I probably wouldn't have lasted long. Yeah. A, because I would have I would have bugged out way earlier yeah. and cussed them out. Yeah. But B, also because, you know, that pers- type of personality isn't usually welcome in these professional settings mm-hmm. or people don't not, might not want to see that depending on who you work for. And um, by that type of personality, you mean, like, like anything black. other than the white palatable... Yeah, yeah. anything other than, like, the, 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 the white palatable, like, nod your head, smile, yes, yeah, master, yeah. I'll do right. that for you. right. So, yeah, so it's, it's like, a weird thing where it's, like, trying to reconcile the fact that, like, being able to move through different rooms doesn't make me weak, but actually makes me stronger. Yeah. I think that's a really important distinction to make, even beyond film. And I feel like everyone has some, well, I don't know if everyone, but I feel like most people have some capacity to code switch, right? Whether it be as small as from an educational setting to, like, a setting with your friends. But with you and with me, I think, for, you know, to a certain extent, it provides you twice or three or four times as much access if you choose to let it and I really like how you put it as like it's not separate parts of you right that they all coexist and they're called on at different times but I do think we'd be remiss to like not mention the privilege that comes with that as well right that's what I was about to say and I was just waiting for you to stop talking so I could say (laughs) um your whole life it's I'm unbelievably privileged to do so because most of my best friends growing up most of the people in my family you know if they, even if they behaved exactly mm-hmm. how I behaved right. and spoke exactly the way I spoke, 
and we're able to switch up the entire you know energy in these rooms, they still are niggas. And you they look at you look at them and you go, that's a nigga. Yeah, they wouldn't even get into the they room. Wouldn't even, yeah, the they they would barely yeah. be able to get into the room. Yeah. So just the fact that like I'm light I'm so light skinned, just the fact that people look at me and they ask me, Are you Egyptian? Are you Dominican? Yeah. Are you are you whatever, whatever, are you a Native American? Like yeah. You know that um, that the ambiguity, mm-hmm. even just that moment of people going, "Oh, he's not that black," mm-hmm. or "He's not black." Yeah. That one slight second of hesitation allows me to maneuver in these yeah. specific specific spaces. So it's absolutely a privilege. So then, let's say in an ideal world, right, where you have your own production company or you're given however million dollars it takes. I don't know how much it takes to make a movie, but a lot of million dollars, <laughs> like. Are you, this is going back to the responsibility question, but maybe not responsibility, are you more inclined then to bring people in who other people would never even consider? Are you more inclined to want to center, like, dark-skinned black people, for example? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, I think the problem with, even even all my films up until this point, in one way or another, have dealt with being othered, but even when I look back at the mm-hmm. films I've made, I'm, like, already so disappointed in myself because I feel like I, I'm a light-skinned, biracial black man, and so a lot of my films are about that specifically. And realizing that, like, you know, the people that I grew up with, the people that I grew up around, the people that lived in my community, as diverse as you can imagine. Right. Um, and the fact that, like, you know, not only have I not considered, like, ways to tell their stories and that they, the, how their stories intersect with mine, but also the ways in which, like, I want to bring these people in behind the camera yeah. because that's even more important. And mm-hmm. so I, I think about it a lot and I, you know, I can't even watch like, my old films because I'm like, I wish I had a chance to do that again. Mm. Um, but, like, it all comes back to, I think about this movie called Magnolia, mm-hmm. which is Paul Thomas Anderson's, like, three-hour-long epic. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I, I usually say it's the, the best movie ever made. Um, you say that? Yeah. Not my favorite, but it's the best <laughs> movie they, ever made. Uh, yeah. And I, I think the about... Frogs. Yes, I think about that movie a lot because that movie literally takes place in the valley of Los Angeles where I grew up. Yeah, Literally right. on the intersections I grew up at. Yeah. Which is a part of the reason why I love it so much. And it's got a beautiful ensemble cast. You're looking at 15 unbelievably talented actors. Two of them are black. And, and when I say... Th- and those two characters... They're not even the main characters. They're auxiliary characters. One is like a the son of a drug addict gangbanger, and then one is a, a, a reporter. And t- t- don't get me wrong, she's badass. And if I ever make movies, I'm gonna cast her in the movies because mm-hmm. she's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole movie is white people. Yeah. And I'm looking at them like on these like first of all where these streets are. Yeah. You have nothing but like black folk mm-hmm. and predominantly Latinx folk from Mexico, Guatemala, Nicaragua, all over the place, Chile. I'm, how many Peruvian friends I had growing up, mm-hmm. and you're telling me like you have a movie set in the valley, and there's and not one person people. of color. Yeah. yeah. Are you? Are you? Are you so, wait, so how are you going to say that this is a, one of the best movies ever made? Because I'm like, how can you separate those two things? Well, I separate it pretty easily, and I think how? this is I think this is an issue that you and I bump up a lot against All because <laughs> I think we pretty much unilaterally agree about the changes that need to be made and how we view the world as it currently stands. But I also think that you're allowed to have to have two conversations simultaneously about anything. Yeah. Like, so when I'm talking about Magnolia, I can have a conversation where I could say this is the most well-crafted, most emotionally riveting movie ever made, mm-hmm. and I love it, mm-hmm. and I can also simultaneously say that it makes no sense to me that there are no people of color. Mm-hmm. Like, separating them out, and not saying that they are separate, but being able to talk about them separately. Mm. 
if you sit around waiting for, like, the perfect movie, the perfect artist, the perfect book, the perfect whatever, like, you're probably going to be waiting for a really long time. Yeah, and, and one, something, one thing that's perfect for one person is not going to be perfect for the other. Exactly. I think that I, I would encourage people to critically think about everything that they watch from, from, from multiple angles. Okay. Right? It's, I think for me as a filmmaker specifically, I can watch Magnolia and love yeah. the craft of the filmmaking and yeah. the story and the writing and, and the performances... But from a social standpoint, I can also acknowledge that like this movie did not do enough to represent the basic community that it was t- t- took place in. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think I like the idea of just not being a passive consumer. Like, yeah. That's what you should do with everything. Yeah. And you can still appreciate some elements while denouncing others. Yeah. I think that applies to, to most things. All right, well, okay, so then let's go into your other strong opinions. What are your absolutely nots? Oh, that's a for, good one. For filmmaking or otherwise. I have a couple absolute nuts um, that I'm excited to share with you folks. The first one is uh, kind of generic, but it's don't underestimate the power of film and television and media in general, uh, especially when it comes to like international audiences and the way that they perceive America, American politics, and American mm-hmm. culture. Like I said, like filmmaking and movies and TV, is just, it's not that important. It's not rocket science. Like We're just shooting things with the cameras, but... At the same time, like this is how so much of the world views us, and this is this is how some this is how we view ourselves. Yeah, I was about to say it's our record of who we are. Exactly right, and if like you're only seeing you know you know black people or, or Muslim folks or Arab folks or Asian people or, or anybody per, per, like portrayed in very specific and frankly negative lights, how do you expect people to look at these all these other communities? So I would just say understand the actual power of media. I, I sat down for a talk one time with this executive. White man, not not surprised. Um, and he used to be uh, the head of production at Universal Studios, which for those of you who don't know, Universal is probably in the top three, top five uh, biggest, most successful movie studios in the world of all time and currently. Yeah. Um, and he told me that uh, when he was the head of the company, which which was in the in the late two thousands, I think, or early two thousands, uh, Universal had been sold. So I want to say like G&E or some random company that had nothing to do with... with Don't look at me like I know what you're talking about. With commercial production. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he said that the, the CEO of that company scheduled a meeting with him to talk to him about you know Universal and what they're planning on doing. And he said he prepared this long deck and all these slides you know, about how they're going to greenlight these amazing blockbusters. And he said the guy that he met with was just joking around the whole time. And he pulled out the slide, and the guy was like, I don't need to see that. It's fine. Oof. And so the CEO of Universal asked him, like, why are you meeting with me? Like, why did you why did you even buy this company? Yeah. yeah. And he said to him, he goes, honestly, Universal, the amount of money that you make on a yearly basis is a drop in the bucket compared to everything else we have going on. He's like, your, your, your yearly revenue won't even show up on our, on our year in report. Wow, I my head around that. And he goes, the only reason I repurchased Universal is because when I'm having important business meetings internationally about technology, about about commerce, whatever it may be, and I'm, and I'm meeting these other CEOs or these presidents or these world leaders, the first thing they always want to talk about is American movies. Interesting. So they just want to be like, they want to talk I about, own them. <laughs> they want to talk about superhero movies. They want to talk about yeah. James Bond, Jason Bourne. And he said, so I, he's like, I literally bought your entire company. Because I wanted to be able to open up my portfolio and say, oh, yeah, we, we funded that movie, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the power of films in many ways is that, like, it really is 
film and TV, and not just film and TV, but music and art in general is really the, the like the number one commerce in the world. Mm-hmm. And I also hope those sports in there too, because anyone who argues that like athletes and sports are not artists is fucking out of their mind. Yeah. Um, it's the it's like the number one like commerce in the world. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, don't don't underestimate the power of movies and television. Is my first one. All right. The second one is. Um, do not assume that because a movie has a diverse cast that the movie itself is diverse. Mm-hmm. I don't think people. I don't unless you work in film. I think you 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 would not be able to imagine the amount of people that go into making films that work behind the camera, either in the in the pre develop in the development phase, mm-hmm. in the actual production phase, or in the in the post production phase. Yeah, as somebody who has sat through one day of your filmmaking, I, I will say, if you are not in the film industry, it is baffling how much goes into it, how many people go into it, how many details there are. Like, there are people whose job it is to just get the bagels, and that's usually me. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any movie that you see, right outside of the frame, there are at least 16 people just standing there holding things, writing down things, whispering things, um, picking up things, putting down <laughs> things. It's insane. And so... Um, and if you have, you have to understand that, like, um, the people who that you see on screen... Such a tiny percentage. It's not only such a tiny per- percentage, but they actually have basically no say in what <laughs> yeah, happens with yeah. the film um, from a development standpoint and from a production standpoint. Yeah. They show up, they collect the money, and they... Yeah. Um, and not taking anything away from them because they have a hard job. Absolutely. But how, the way you really promote diversity is by allowing... Uh, diverse creators to create, whether that be directors, editors, writers, cinematographers, grips and gaffers, the people that actually are in charge of putting up the lights. Yeah. Like, think about this. Like, the people that are in charge of actually lighting diverse casts are white people, usually. Yeah. They're usually white men. I mean, what you have to understand is, like, movie technology, movie-related cameras, everything that has to do with the, the process of movie making was created in conjunction with the rise of the movie star. And throughout history... There have been very few movie stars of color, right? And so you have to understand that the way cameras are designed, the way yeah. lighting packages are designed, yeah. they're designed to make white people look like gods. Mm-hmm. They're designed to make Brad Pitt look like the sexiest man ever. Mm-hmm. They weren't designed to make Denzel look good, and Denzel was so sexy that he that made himself good. look good. <laughs> but you have to understand yeah. that we are just now, when I say just now, I mean like literally just now, within the last five or ten years, like making cameras and lighting packages, designing them so that they can actually make anybody look attractive, right? Because we have never cared about making black people look sexy. That's yeah. never been a yeah. priority. Yeah. And so we've we literally lit black folk the way you would lit like white folk, and I've literally seen on set people just give up. I don't know. I can't. I can't. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Wow. Um, and so like so the entire basis of our film industry is based on making white yeah, people like, look good. Like default. Yeah. yeah. And so you can only really shift that dynamic by making people behind the camera diverse as well. Yeah. And making them understand that like not it's not just how not who's on screen, but how we're actually crafting the movie from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's an important one. Yeah. I, I mean, I really appreciate that. I feel like that's so much that people don't know, even people within film, but certainly people that are not in film. But that's not to say that, like, who's on screen also doesn't matter. I do feel like... Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right? There's, there's the element of, like, who's visible 
and who, you know, who we choose to represent us as actors is really huge in a lot of ways. But, you know, the people behind the camera matter just as much for the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, I think, you know, allowing black, I keep saying black, but allowing black, indigenous people of color, you know, LGBTQIA people to be on camera doesn't actually allow them to dictate their own stories. They're still being told mm-hmm. who to be, how to act. And so, you know, the only way we can really change the institution of, of Hollywood and filmmaking is by allowing these diverse voices to actually create their own institutions inside Hollywood. I was about to say, is this a reform versus abolish conversation? Yeah, like, I mean... Can you reform Hollywood to do that, or do you just... Because you said it a little bit earlier, but, like, is it possible to change it so much? Is it is it enough to, like, put just shift the power? Put the power yeah, the I mean, I think that's such a big discussion right now. Yeah. Like, with Hollywood specifically... Um, it's hard because there's so much history here. And yes, it's white-dominant history, but it's a beautiful history. Like the, uh. the, his, <laughs> like, the history of cinema, the golden age of Hollywood, like, it really is beautiful. And, and so, like, it's hard because you want to fucking burn this industry down, but you also want to maintain, like, what got us here. Yeah, I mean, you have to, because even the first black filmmaker was inspired by something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so, I don't know, it's hard. It's hard, it's hard. But, um... At the end of the day, I think it's it comes down to like just allowing us to form institutions, and yeah. um, and I don't think like th- what we were saying about Tyler Perry, like Tyler Perry created his own institution without burning anything down, and I think you can do both. I think you can reform and create institutions. Okay. Did you have any other? Absolutely not. I have one more. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna frame it properly for you. Thank you. Absolutely, do not. Did I fuck that up already? No, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Absolutely, do not advocate for diverse media film and television if you are not prepared to fiscally support it say it again no i'm not gonna say it again (laughs) you heard what i said the first time um but you you have to understand the way this works is like hollywood is a machine right the patriarchy is a machine um you know white white whiteness is a machine and they're all machines that are designed to make money that's all they are they're like money machines Mm-hmm. And they're going to do whatever they're going to have to do to to continue making money. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. Capitalism. And honestly, like, this might be a crazy thing to say that you might disagree with, but white people, especially as it pertains to racism, I don't even think they are they care about black people one way or another, in positive or negative ways. I think they care about money. Why do you think I would disagree with that? Well, well I don't know, because I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know what you would agree disagree with. But the point I'm trying to make is that like white people, are, I think in many ways, only continue to be racist because it makes them money. Right. They only stop when money stops, and they have to. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, you look at what, you look what happened with like when Get Out came out. When Get Out came out, every studio in Hollywood was like, we need to make black movies now. Right. right. The point I'm trying to make is that you have to physically support the type of movies that you want seen. Because if that movie makes money, they're gonna make a million more like it, and they're gonna they're gonna hire and and, and support creatives who are making those types of movies, right. and those right. types of t- types of people aren't white. Yeah. Um, and even like you know, I think I talk about with a lot of my friends, and my friend Alec brings up this good point about Oscar Oscar winning movies, and how people say like whatever wins Best Picture isn't important, right? Um, and they're like, who cares what movie won Best Picture? Well, it's actually very important because when a movie wins Best Picture, yeah. like the amount of money that they can request for yeah. streaming websites, yeah. the amount of uh, commercials that they can yeah. produce, the amount of money it makes, the amount of DVDs that people buy, yeah. um, those movies get hurt, and more movies like that get made. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, obviously, like, I don't even want to hear your opinion 
about what you think about you know X Y and Z movies if you're bootlegging movies or you're not you're, you you don't go to the movie theater like I just don't want to hear it. Um, Are you trying to act like you don't bootleg movies? No, I bootleg the fuck out of movies. <laughs> and if like, you're listening to me, hold on. Hold on. If you're Checking listening to me, FBI and, and and LAPD, that was a joke. I do not bootleg movies, but I definitely bootleg <laughs> movies. No, but the point I'm trying to make is that if there's a movie that I want to see that's in yeah. theaters, you're gonna pay for it. I, and before you do coronavirus, it's true. You know, you know me. I go yeah, to movies all the time by myself. I don't give yeah. a shit. Yeah. And so for me, you know, you have to be prepared to fiscally support movies. Now, the movies that I bootleg are movies that. You've yeah. already no. You've already paid for. Yeah. You already sometimes you already own. Yes, yes. Yeah, this it's true. This man in our house has so many hard copies of DVDs that uh, there's no longer any space for any of my stuff. It's just yes. DVDs everywhere. Exactly. Um. So that's important. Just support support yeah. the kind of content you want to be created because otherwise yeah. it won't be made. Yeah, that's real. Um, I think that and support me specifically because you know I can make the kind of yeah, content you want. So your cash app is yeah. At give me some cash app, a couple million dollars here and there. <laughs> we'll make it work. I know you got some rich white folks listening, probably. But actually, it's I mean that's very real. I it's really hard to make movies or to be a creative in any way, shape, or form because there is no clear path. There is no clear person that's going to support you if you don't have that foundation. Like I don't know how you do it. Also, it's just like so intimately tied to who you are as a person. I say this all the time. I could never do it because if somebody rejects your work, they're rejecting you in, a, in essence. If you're, you know, a writer or creative in some way, I don't have the thick enough skin to do that because it's like... True, true, you don't. Yeah, definitely <laughs> um, But that's very real. And that being said, I do think I need to ask you, what are your top five favorite movies of all time? Ooh. Because this is either where people are like, oh, yeah, I believe everything he just said, or they say, or they throw it all out the window and they go, <laughs> nobody's talking about. That's a hard one. Number one is The Truman Show. Yeah. Anyone who knows me knows that. Our dog is named Truman. Yeah. Because of this movie. Next is Magnolia, the next mo- the movie I was telling you about uh, by Paul Thomas Anderson. I, w- I would say that... R.I.P. Philip. Yeah, I would say that three is Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. Jim Carrey. White, white, white. Yeah, What's they're all, they're all going to be white. I don't, I don't feel bad about it at all. <laughs> the fourth one is going to be Requiem for a Dream, I think. Um, and I'm num- just sound pretentious. Yeah, I know. And number five, this is so hard. This is really hard. Number five, I'm probably going to go the entire Before trilogy mm. as like one story. Before, before Sunrise... Before sunset, before sunrise, before sunset, before midnight. So yeah, I love white people. Yeah, basically. Okay, then perhaps a more interesting question is what is one movie that you think everyone should see that they probably haven't? Or a movie that they should stop watching? No, stop stop watching Hamilton. People, <laughs> don't watch Hamilton. Hamilton. Here's our hot take. It's not a hot take. It's a regular take. Hamilton, don't watch it. Can you give us a little sample of what Hamilton sounds like? No. I will not give you a sample of what Hamilton sounds like, and I will not give you the satisfaction of showing you Lin Manuel's weak bars. The son of a swordsman, a whoresman, coming from the floors, man. I think Alexander Hamilton. No. Hi guys. So I know that I mentioned that Hamilton wasn't that good, and before you got too upset, I just wanted to tell you why it's not good. Um, first and foremost, no disrespect to the cast. The cast is actually really phenomenal. And that is the best part of the entire piece. And there are some people that are going to go on and be amazing stars. Now, Lin-Manuel Miranda, whatever the hell his name is, I love him. I think Man he's... Manuel. I think he's a creative force to be reckoned with, and I'm glad he exists. He's the worst part of Hamilton. <laughs> point blank. He should have gave his role to David Diggs, or to Alex Ramos, or to any other black person in that cast, honestly. Um, his bars are weak. The way he raps his bars are weak. It sounds like my spoken word from, from I would say, like, 
seventh, eighth grade. Not ninth grade. Ninth grade, I got too good. Um, <laughs> also, uh, I'm kind of blindsided by how minimal and bare bones the, the, the stage is. I don't know anything about Broadway, so I, I guess like most stages these days are minimalistic. But I thought it was going to be like a bunch of dope transitions and cool backgrounds. I didn't know that we were going to have weddings, funerals, and wars on some random-ass warehouse building. Also, I don't like musicals in general. I'll just say that now. There are some I really like, but I can't stand musicals that sing the entire time. That's just, if you want to lose me, that's how you lose me. And because at that point, it's, just, it's an opera. And I definitely don't like operas, okay? And this was just rapping... For three and a half hours straight. No time for reprieve. Couldn't catch my breath from these weak ass bars. Couldn't no no moments of drama or levity. It was just it was just a poor man, swords man. Nah, I'm good off that. Please stop rapping. Alright. Also, the costumes were actually pretty fire. I can't front on the costumes point. And there were some bars that were good, but by and large, I mean what a disappointment. But real talk, Emmanuel, I do love you. And if you if you got if you need someone to direct something or you have a job opportunity, come yeah. out, holla at your boy. I like him as a person. And, and as an artist, I think he's super talented. But you have to say Manuel. Lin Manuel. Don't do that, Manuel. Lin Manuel. You, Manuel. Manuel Miranda. But but I will say I watched one movie that I <laughs> I watched one movie that I. I've never seen before, and a good friend of mine actually told me to watch it, and I'm sure a lot of people have, but nothing but a man. Mm. Um, it's a really understated, subtle movie, um, but it's like such a beautiful movie about what it means to be black in this country and what it has always meant, because it really has not changed since that movie came out. So I would go say watch that movie. Yeah. But um, if, you, if you need recommendations, you know, hit me up. I got you. Yeah, it's true. He does. It's pretty cool. You can he's like a movie name generator. You can be like, I'm in the mood to watch a movie under two this is always what I enter into the generator. Under two hours, funny, maybe romantic, some serious drama with a non white protagonist. And then I go people 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 Sorry, no films in the database. Just kidding, but he will tell you actual ones. Okay. So that's the end. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm done. Okay, go walk the dog, please. <laughs> Absolutely not. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely not. Okay, love you. Bye. Ooh, all right. To all the Hamilton fans listening, I'm sorry to have had to put you through that. Regardless of our stances on Hamilton, though, I hope we can all agree on the importance of supporting artists with marginalized identities, and especially Black artists who are too often undervalued and robbed from. On that note, you can check out Deontay's work at DeontaySingley.com and his Instagram at DownpourSummerFilms, both linked in the show notes. I truly don't think I can overstate the power of art and storytelling, especially on an interpersonal level. I mean, nothing teaches empathy quite like getting to experience a narrative through someone else's eyes. So if you are an artist in any capacity, thank you. Seriously. Also, thanks for listening. Most of almost next time on Absolutely Not. Absolutely not. <laughs>